Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. This episode is dedicated to the recent, inspiring, and victorious teacher strike in West Virginia. West Virginia teachers went out on strike in late February over low pay and continued attacks on the health insurance plan they share with all other state workers. They stayed out despite an initial deal signed by the governor and their leadership and ultimately won a 5% raise not just for themselves, but for all public employees in West Virginia, as well as promised insurance, promised reforms to their insurance plan known as PEIA, P-E-I-A. I spoke with two teacher leaders from West Virginia and an expert on teacher unionism to get some perspective on how this strike came about, how it was won, and what others can learn from its example. My first guest is Emily Comer. Emily is a high school Spanish teacher in South Charleston, West Virginia. She is a rank-and-file activist in her local of the AFT, the American Federation of Teachers. I also spoke with Lois Weiner, professor in the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education at New Jersey City University and a specialist in urban teacher education and teacher unionism. Her research actively supports teachers who want to transform their unions. My final guest is Brendan Wolford, local president of the WVEA in Mingo County. The WVEA is the West Virginia Education Association, and alongside the AFT, it is one of the two big teachers unions in West Virginia. And Mingo County, of course, has a storied place in labor history as an epicenter in the mine wars and mining struggles throughout the 20th century. First up, my conversation with Emily Comer. To, to get started, maybe I could just get your perspective on, you know, on, on how the victory of the, uh, of the strike feels in perspective after, after a few weeks and after, you know, we've had time to kind of process it and, and, uh, and, and you know, and get back to it and, and, and see where you are now. Well, you know, considering that we had a really hostile Republican legislature that was opposed to um, anything, giving us anything, um, the fact that we won a 5% raise um, for all school employees and all public employees across the state is really huge. Um, I I think that that's incredible, and uh, we cannot downplay that win. Um, we're certainly not finished. Uh, we very much have a fight on our hands with our health care uh, called PEIA. So there's now a task force. I mean, that this was the issue that, um, that brought us out on strike to begin with. Um, I don't think that um, teachers and school employees would have gone out on strike over pay alone. I think it was very much health care that that brought us out. You know, we have these hearings uh, every year to talk about, um, you know, the rising cost of our our insurance. Um, and it seems like year after year, the fact that people were coming out to these hearings and complaining and nothing was getting done, um, that all sort of led to this. Yeah. I mean, maybe you could go in a little bit into the the main demands and the issues at stake in the strike. I mean, like you said, wages and and, and insurance together, uh, at least looking from the outside, really seem to be the basis. But how is that related, you know, to just general overall working conditions for teachers? What was sort of the the broad background to this upsurge 
uh, in struggle in West Virginia? Well, I mean, West Virginia as a whole, you know, is not is not doing so great. And, um, you know, it's not just it's not certainly not just teachers. Um, you know, you have some counties where um, teachers are, um, you know, doing so, you know, the school system is the largest employer in the county. Um, and some of the, the southern counties in West Virginia, that's the case. And you have uh, much of the rest of the county living in poverty. And um, you have, and in those counties, really across the state, you had a huge amount of community support. And in those counties, you especially had community support, which I think a lot of people uh, found surprising that uh, even though teachers are paid so poorly in some of these southern counties, they're going on strike for a raise when you have other people in the county living in poverty. People thought, you know, how are these parents that are living in poverty uh, supporting the striking teachers, you know, it's right. kind of a thing. But, um, you know, it's because people realize that the reason our state in general is doing so badly is because we have uh, politicians who are bought out, you know, by corporate interests, and year after year, they do nothing for us. Um, and I think that our messaging from the very beginning spoke to that. You know, teachers said from the beginning we wanted um, we wanted to see a gas severance tax. Uh, we didn't want revenue that would hurt people of the state. We didn't want, you know, like a soda tax or any kind of regressive tax. We wanted to, we want uh, to tax the gas companies that are taking taking our resources and making a profit off of us. Well, and then we've you know we've seen that it's very easy for the right in public sector strikes to try to turn people against the public sector and, and paint this kind of picture, uh, and yet you were able to to cut across that. Yeah, and another thing is that really we formed um, we worked really well with the community and with parents. We uh, we set up we worked with churches to make sure that kids were fed. Um, many in many counties, um, teachers did. Uh, like backpack programs where they sent meals home uh, to make sure that kids were fed. So, so many of our students um, rely on free breakfast and lunch. And uh, in every single county, we had uh, programs during the strike, uh, you know, set up by teachers to make sure that there were meals provided for those students. And what kind of work did you do internally? You know, what kind what kind of organizing went into creating something that was powerful, you know, powerful enough to extract the gains you made. It's, you know, it, in the media internationally, we we saw this sort of outcome, the the statewide strike, but I'm sure there was a lot, a lot of work that went into, you know, if you could give a picture of what that looked like. Um, well, we had a, I don't know, I know this has been talked about a lot, we had a secret uh, Facebook group that sort of uh, was a catalyst for a lot of um, a lot of this. Um, very early on, we were using the Facebook group just to get people out to town halls, uh, mm. public hearings, that sort of thing. And um, people realized that we were we were really organizing people uh, effectively through the Facebook group and through those proper channels, uh, getting people to show up to these events. You know, we turned a lot of people out, and people realized that um, that was not working. People all across the state who are in this Facebook group 
saw that and kind of realized all at the same time, oh, this isn't going to work unless we do something. We kind of step this up and uh, take a bolder action here. Yeah, and, and, and make that move sort of from communications and from that sort of online world into into the real world to some extent, which is, you know, which is harder. <laughs> yeah, and so there, yeah, and so we were able to, um, you know, you had uh, people across, there were teachers and school employees in all 55 counties in this Facebook group who were then, uh, you know, taking um, information they were getting in the Facebook group and executing plans within their schools. So, like, one example, we started doing this thing uh, called walk-ins. It's like an informational picket. So we did this to get public support uh, before uh, the strike. And at that point, you know, we didn't know that there would be a strike. We hadn't taken a vote, but it was starting to look like there might be a strike. Mm -hmm. I don't remember where this idea started or what county started it, but one of the counties uh, started doing walk-ins where um, teachers at, you know, each school would show up to work 30 minutes early and hold signs and do an informational picket um, just to let parents know what was going on and what our issue was. And um, that was a good way to communicate with parents and kind of get them on our side uh, before we actually walked out. And then once it started in one county and then they shared it on the Facebook group, it kind of spread to other counties and all across the state people said, hey, we should be doing this too. And then before you knew it, uh, the whole state was doing walk-ins. And, you know, that was another way that we um, we got community support before the, the strike itself. From what I from what I understand, about 75% of West Virginia teachers are women, and I think that's very similar to what we have here in BC, Canada, and I, I imagine across a, a large number of jurisdictions. What, what role did that play in the strike, or what, you know, what was that sort of the gendered aspect of uh, of this whole conflict? First of all, I think it's awesome. I just, uh, you know, I, <laughs> I don't know. Like, I haven't really, uh, I don't know that I've had time uh, to reflect on, you know, what that means, but I, it's awesome to see, you know, the entire state school system shut down and, you know, 75% of those workers are women. Um, you know, women are powerful and that's, that's awesome. But I, I think that, I don't know, one of the things that I, uh, I kept hearing my, my coworkers who are married say is that uh, this, like a lot of them kept saying, oh, this is like really like, oh, I'm not going to, I haven't been able to cook dinner. And, you know, I've been, uh, <laughs> it was like their, their husbands were really having to step up and like do stuff that they should be doing anyway at home, you know, because uh, they were, we were, uh, we were, can I cuss? We were, we were working yeah. our asses off at the Capitol, right? I, don't, I think it was like, it took um, a particularly difficult emotional toll on uh, these women to be out there all day. You know, we got to our picket line at 7 o'clock in the morning, uh, and we were picketing in our communities for a couple of hours in the morning and then we would go to the Capitol first thing and stand in line. And then we we're at the Capitol like all day. Yeah. Um, so we were there. I mean, we were working. Our full-time job was to be on strike and we were working longer hours than, you know, we would typically work in the classroom. Uh, many of us were. And 
it's a kind of work that's so exhausting. Women still carry this burden of having to take care of, you know, having to take care of the kids and being the ones in charge of making sure everybody's fed and that sort of thing. So, you know, we do this anyway uh, with our jobs, right? We we take mm-hmm. care of kids and we're sort of expected to. It's like a pink collar job, right? So we're we have that kind of emotional labor every day uh, at school. We're social workers, right? And we um, we we're not just teachers; we're social workers, and we're also counselors when that comes up. And we uh, I don't know. Uh, we are always working. Uh, more more jobs than than what's in our job description and so many of them require emotional labor and um that that uh that only increased during the strike yeah just fewer hours to do all of the things it seemed like i don't know that's something i've i've kind of been reflecting on i want to ask you a bit too about a sort of you know a, th- a thorny issue a little about the relationship between the rank and file and the leadership during the strike <laughs> Um, and, and especially, you know, we saw that there was that deal signed within the first few days, and then it was, you know, it was rejected by members. It, it looked, you know, sort of voting with their feet, voting to to keep uh, to keep striking, to keep continuing the strike. Um, but it, you know, it also from afar doesn't look too black and white, white like a bitter split. It seemed like sort of the leadership was, you know, maybe catching up to the members to to a certain degree. What? What was that relationship like? What is it like now? What are some of the difficulties involved there? Yeah, so I, I mean, I think that the it, it's very difficult when you live in a state that has two teachers unions and a service personnel union. Uh, it's difficult to all be on the same page, and um, it's you can't. It's hard to fault the unions for that. It's just a difficult environment in which to organize, and we knew that, mm-hmm. and. Um, I'm a member of AFT. Um, a friend of mine who originally started the Facebook group is a member of WVEA, and we knew that, and that was one of our reasons for starting the Facebook group. Uh, we thought that you know if we could create a platform where people uh, who belong to either of the unions or maybe who didn't even belong to a union could uh, openly talk and be on the same page, uh, then we could get you know, both teachers' unions moving in the same direction. And um, so, again, I don't, that's not really, I don't think that's the union's fault necessarily, but, um, you know, it it did seem like things were moving, uh, things, it's not that it seems like things absolutely were moving from the rank-and-file, it was rank-and-file-led, and then, um, you know, to their credit, the unions didn't try to, I don't think they tried to stop anything. I think they made us aware of uh, the dangers of going out on strike. They said, this is illegal. You know, if um, you do this, you're subject to uh, this, this, and this. Um, You know, they said we could, there could be an injunction. They let us know everything that could happen, right? They let us know the consequences. Um, But they didn't, I mean, ultimately when um, it was clear that people wanted to walk out we i mean we took a vote yeah and um they didn't stand in our way you know i give them credit for that i think that's sort of i think that's sort of how it should be yeah to, and, and and you were able to to continue the strike even after that that initial deal which you know it looked like membership just basically saw as, as insufficient and and 
looked like they just didn't trust not so much the leadership as the politicians to to actually follow through on a deal that you know that hadn't been passed by the legislature it became clear um on that was that it was a tuesday that the union sat down and made a deal with the governor uh the union sat down and made a really bad deal with the governor Mm -hmm. um and it's not a deal that the membership wanted we didn't we didn't again we went out for insurance uh we went out for our health care and that was um number one for us uh a, a raise was secondary not only that they announced that we would be going back into work at, you know, before it had even passed, the 5% raise had passed through the House or the Senate. And you had that night, um, Mitch Carmichael, our Senate president, had, our, you know, he was coming out and saying he was not pre- prepared, he was not on board with this deal, he didn't agree to any kind of deal, and he was going to do everything he could to stop it. Um so, I mean, yeah, there was certainly a backlash and um, there was not great communication between our union leaders and um, the rank and file. And I think, um, yeah, I think that there um, there definitely needs to be, going forward, um, one of the great things about all of this, I mean, there are a number of great things about this, but um, we've had... Um, a surge in union membership and as we go forward um we need to figure out how to communicate better within our unions um and our union leaders need to trust us and you know realize that we have good instincts and uh clearly we did you know we stayed out (laughs) till until the very end we knew that uh it was not the right thing to go back uh at that point um, until we actually got the five percent, and uh, we held out and we got it. So, and what are some of those next steps? Like you say, you know, you clearly have a re-energized membership and and a lot of new memberships. What what's going on now? What what's the new organizing, and how are you building on this victory? And like you mentioned, you know, a bit at the beginning, trying to correct some of that those long-term austerity and equality trends that that got. West Virginia into this place, you know, in the first place? Yeah, well, we have, um, first of all, uh, we need revenue. We need revenue for our raises, uh, and we need revenue for uh, for funding PEIA, for our insurance. And we have the, the next um, step, and our organizing is we are watching the task force. There is a, the governor, as part of this deal, uh, the governor put together a task force on our health care. And so he's appointed uh, 29 people uh, to fix, uh, to fix our health, to come up with a plan to fix our health care. And we have, those 29 people include our, the leaders of our three unions, um, a couple of, well, a retired union leader, a retired teacher. Uh, so you have a couple of, like, retired workers on the task force, but you also have people like uh, insurance CEOs, and um, which is really bad because you have several, and you have, um, you know, like, Senate Republicans and... Um, 
you know, there's some very unfriendly people on the task force, and it looks like uh, there are plenty of people on the task force who have expressed or have hinted that they might want to privatize our insurance. So that's a bit scary. We plan to organize around that. We certainly have plans to do that. As a last thing, I've asked this, everyone I'm talking to around, you know, around the strike, I'm asking this because it, there really is something bubbling up that I think you've, you've sparked as you've seen in places like Oklahoma, Arizona, uh, Jersey City. There really is a lot of discontent among, you know, teachers particularly, and I think a lot of them are taking inspiration from your strike. What's, what lessons would you have for, for those teachers? What do you think are, you know, from your perspective, what are the key, key lessons of your strike for teachers and for the labor movement going forward in, in the U.S.? Uh, the biggest lesson I learned in all of this is that um, people, you know, when people have an issue that unites them, when the you know workers have an issue that unites them, they will totally put everything else. Nothing else matters, uh, and they won't let anything else get in the way. So, um, I you know during the strike, and not just during the strike, but leading up to the strike, I was organizing with teachers in my building who I totally disagree with politically on like everything. <laughs> Um, you know, teachers who voted for Donald Trump. I mean, like it, you know, um, it brought together, um, people from so many different backgrounds. And, um, so don't let stuff like that get in the way. Don't think, um, you know, just because, uh, you have any kind of like political difference or whatever difference that, uh, this is not gonna have, it's like not the climate where, you know, you can uh, have a strike or you can uh, have your demands met, right? Um, yeah. People push that kind of thing to the side. Um, so I think that that's one big part of it. And um, another thing is just talk to people, um, to get people talking. Um, don't be afraid to uh, to talk about uh, workplace issues at work. Um, that's... You know, I am new to my school. Uh, this is my this is my third year teaching, but it's my first year teaching at my school. And I didn't know anybody at the beginning of the year, and now I know every single teacher. My I like became building rep in the process of all of this for uh, for my union at my school. And um, it, you know, I know very much of this happened uh, on Facebook, but. Uh, it could not have happened without real life in person organizing in schools. Uh, so don't be afraid to, you know, eat in the teacher's lounge and or wherever you work. Uh, meet your coworkers and talk to them and get to know them. Um, and talk about what you read in the paper about uh, how, you know, your governor is giving tax breaks to corporations but he can't find the money to fund your health care or whatever you yeah. know that was south charleston teacher and aft activist emily comer next lois weiner professor of education at new jersey city university were you surprised by the outcome of the west virginia teacher strike and sort of by the scale of uh, 
of the victory and the scale of the sort of organ, you know organized power that that developed there so quickly. No, and I'll tell you why. Um, I wasn't surprised. I was delighted, but I wasn't surprised. I have informal uh, contact and communication with activists um, all over the country, and actually in Europe as well, uh, teacher union activists. I was in touch with actually some activists, some teachers from West Virginia contacted me um, last fall, and they said things are really happening here. And we uh, tossed around some ideas, and it became clear to me from talking with them that the organizing was really like setting fire to tinder. Mm-hmm. In retrospect, these things are very are very easy to see in retrospect, <laughs> you know. Um, they're harder to see uh, while the organizing is going on because the organizing is really molecular and we don't see that. It's under the radar. But it's going on in just dozens of communities all over the country, dozens of states. And it's been going on for at least 10 years. So I, I don't think that we should be surprised at the um, at these what seem to be explosions because um, and in fact I'm writing something about this right now uh, because I'm uh, dismayed by a lot of the coverage uh, which has reduced the struggles to struggles over wages and while that is the form that the struggles are taking People who are not in education don't realize the anger that classroom teachers feel about the disempowerment and the deprofessionalization that has occurred as part of the neoliberal project. So when you walk into a school and you say to people, uh, what is bothering you most about your job? Very often, people will not say as the very first thing, my wages. They're going to talk about other conditions of their labor that affect their dignity as workers. When they, when the union, when they organize, though, in a union setting, the way that their frustration and anger at not being respected as workers or for teachers professionals the way it takes form is over wages because that is something that is pretty easily actionable right doesn't require massive reform of the school system it just it, i don't want to say just it requires the people who are uh, in control of the government to cough up money so it's essential, and it's key, and it's not the only issue that is making schools tinderboxes. People who have done union organizing, people who really have done union organizing as workers themselves, organizing colleagues, know that there's a um, that there's a frustration that people feel about wages 
and benefits, their paycheck, that is immediate and easily tapped. But the reasons that people go on strike are much deeper than that. It has to do with your dignity as a worker. This frustration and rage that people feel, the feeling that they are not being represented by the unions that are supposed to represent them is, has been very deep in this country for a decade. And um, I think that we're, what we're actually seeing now is the second wave following the 2012 strike of the Chicago Teachers Union. Well, that, that's what I wanted to ask you about. And I think in, in an article in, in, in these times, you, you wrote that you saw these echoes of, of both the 2012 CTU, Chicago Teachers Strike, and you also mentioned the 2011 occupation of the state capital in, in Wisconsin in, in right. protest then against Scott Walker's anti-union legislation. What's the thread that links those to today and, and what's reflected sort of in both strategy because and tactics? I think that one of the things you have to see, one of the things you have to examine in these strikes, one of the things that you have to look at in the strikes is where is teacher salary coming from? That's a very important factor that people haven't looked at. They, that people who, the people who are writing about the West Virginia strike are not people who know education. They're people who know labor. And there are some very, there are some very important and particular characteristics about the struggles that are going on now in Oklahoma and Arizona. You know, people are talking now about organizing to go out there as well. Um, one issue is that uh, in West Virginia, most of teachers, most of school districts' budget comes from the state, directly from the state. And then individual districts can add on to it. So what that means is if you want a salary increase, you, the focus of your struggle is not your individual school district. The focus of your struggle is the state legislature. That's a very important distinction that people have to understand in, in understanding why it is certain states are, you know, certain states are exploding in this way and that it's taking a focus the focus is on the state legislature. One of the uh, one of the critical issues in West Virginia is that both health care costs and salary were being set pretty directly by the state legislature, who controlled the funds that are then given to the local school districts. In other places, property taxes are funding schools. So that's one thing I want to point out. The other thing, and, and that's the similarity, the similarity then with the um, occupation of the state capitol in Wisconsin was it was a political fight over collective bargaining, right? Yeah. And who controls collective bargaining? Well, the state. That, it, was a, it, was a, it was a reaction to the state legislation to withdraw collective bargaining, to make collective bargaining illegal for public employees. So we have in some states a fusion of the political and economic focus on the state legislature, and other states the focus is 
for economic relief is on the school district. And, and I mean, that, so. that was interesting in West Virginia, too, is that, you know, you sort of heard this cynical line right after the settlement that this will be paid by cuts to Medicare and Medicaid, you know, that it'll just be a sort of redistribution of of the same, of, of the state budget. Um, and, you know, some of it seemed a little over the top because that the legislation, the actual legislation that was passed did not tie the salary increase to any funding mechanism. But it does open up this question. I mean, what, what, what kinds of strategies can West Virginia teachers and others, as you mentioned, you know, follow? I, I want to say this coverage that was this coverage, this coverage about that, the, this coverage about the, the, the settlements being paid for by cuts to the population it was really cynical and inaccurate and wrong. You know, it was uh, it was incorrect. And um, actually, the Nation put out an article that had that headline. And uh, uh, I just heard about someone who squawked and said, "You that headline is really terrible. Terrible that a publication that calls itself progressive would have it because it's not supported by the facts. The, yeah. the facts are that this is what's very interesting. The, the person who started the strike fund for the West Virginia teachers is someone who's been active in single payer in West Virginia. She's a, she's a community activist for labor, mm-hmm. labor for single payer health care. So from the very start, this movement was, had leadership that was thinking about a progressive solution to taxation. Um, They also are aligned with a West Virginia legislator who comes from one of the poorest coal mining counties who pointed his finger at the extractive economy, something of interest to BCTF, to the extractive economy and said, you know what, the gas and the oil companies have been looting the state, and they have to pay for this. Mm. So um, those stories were just that that line that the money was going to be taken out of the general budget. It was inaccurate, and it was unfair. Mm. Uh, th- in saying that, I want to just I want to point out that this is a mass movement. This this was a movement that was organized outside of the union. They used, well, the way I'd like to, uh, the way I think it's, it's clearest to understand it is that the movement used the union. The union didn't use the movement. The movement used the union. It was the movement that was calling the shots. And because it is a mass movement, a mass social movement, there's not a uniformity of beliefs mm-hmm. about where the money should come from, you know, all of these, all of these issues. And that's true of any mass social movement that involves people from, who have different beliefs on a whole variety of issues, right? Yeah. That's the challenge for labor. Yeah. And I mean, it, and it, it'll be interesting to see how that challenge is taken up because it seemed like the strike also had quite significant support you know among the public which again it's easy and and we've seen in the past where it's easy you know for the state to sort of pit especially state workers against 
the rest of the citizenry because yeah, you know, there wasn't there there wasn't there wasn't the kind of anti-public employee backlash in West Virginia that we've seen previously in other places. And why do you think uh, that that was, or what, or you know, what well, lessons can we generate sort of from? That? Well, I think one thing is that there's a resonance for. I, I want to say this that. You know, the, there's a deep, deep resonance in New, in uh, West Virginia of of the minor strikes mm-hmm. and of labor. You know, of 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 social class, and the strikers drew on that. And one of the things that they did that was very, very smart and very important was that it was an industrial action in the sense that all of the employees of the school districts were involved not just teachers. They also included school crossing guards and bus drivers. And that's very wall-to-wall, wall-to-wall organizing. And they included both unions, AFT and NEA, and then the service service workers. So it was a a wall-to-wall walkout. And the other thing is that um, they had built community support they had very deep community support, in part because the teachers live in the communities where they teach. And that has something to do with it being a rural state. So how do we reproduce that in a place like New York City or Rochester, you know, where teachers may not live in the cities, places where there are not residency requirements? Our housing is too expensive for teachers to live. How do we reproduce that, right, uh, in those communities? And uh, what do we do about, what do we do in places where there isn't that still resonating labor, um, uh, still resonating um history of labor unrest. Okay, but the other thing that's very important about this, I don't think that these strikes would have been possible without the Sanders campaign Hmm. for, uh, for two reasons. First reason is that the activists themselves who are often leading these strikes, or if they're not leading it, they're very active in them, very often these people are socialists. And they are people who are socialists who were teachers, but who were not active in the union as teachers. And they may not have even been that politically active. And the Sanders campaign uh, generated enormous enthusiasm for politics. It politicized uh, a new generation. And teachers are among that generation that have been politicized for the first time in 15 years. So, and the Sanders campaign was, and the Sanders demands, are class conscious. And he uses the term working class, which is not a vernacular that the American labor movement has been comfortable with. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Trump used that vernacular too. Trump has used that language too. And, um... That is, I think, one of the most important lessons for us from West Virginia 
is that although the state went for Trump, it also went for Sanders. That's not to say that there isn't racism among the workers who voted for Trump. It is to say that there is a class consciousness that the unions can mobilize. And to me, that is one of the most important lessons of West Virginia. Yeah. And, I mean, the other big thing happening at the at the same time, and this was quite the juxtaposition to me, and this, you know, I, I think it's relatively related, is that the opening arguments were being heard at the Supreme Court in the in the Janus case, right, which has huge implications for the labor movement, uh, and it was just sort of striking to see that happening. You know, that happening in in, in the courthouse while you have this sort of mass ups, upsurge of, of actual struggle right. in, in, in one state, and especially in one where right to work is already a, a reality. I don't know, you know, I th- you know, I think there's lessons for American public sector unionism and, and unionism in general here that... Um, you know, I, I want to say something about right to work. People use right to work as a sort of a catch-all, and I think it's really important to, under, to unpack that a little mm-hmm. bit. Right-to-work laws originally were just about the fact that you couldn't have a closed shop, that um, meaning that everybody had to join the union. Now, I want you to think about how far away we are from that reality, that everybody has to be a member of the union in order to work. You have to join the union. We lost that a long time ago. What, what we have now is that even if you're not a member of the union, if the union has collective bargaining rights for you, you have to pay the equivalent of money of, that the union is paying to defend you as a worker in that workplace. And that's what's at stake at Janus for public employees, is that the union doesn't have a right to collect what's sometimes called agency fee. In other words... You don't have to join the union, but you have to pay the equivalent of right, what the union that's, that's is spending. Narrow collective bargaining costs. Yeah, the narrow collective bargaining costs. So, to uh, I think that um, there's this there's this extraordinary contradiction that we are seeing right now in capitalism. And that's what the West Virginia and the Janus decision uh, being before the Supreme Court represent. On the one hand, the public employee unions are tired, sclerotic, incapable of answering the political arguments that are raised in Janus. That's, That's what I'm saying as a union member and as somebody who looks at what the unions are doing. They do not have a political answer to what the right is saying. They just, because they, they, they have lost the language of class struggle and they refuse to be anti-capitalist. Mm-hmm. So we have these sclerotic public employee unions at the same time, and here we have the, the contradiction, this workers' movement this mass social movement that organized outside of the unions. So I think 
I mean, if if the uh, ruling class, <laughs> if the ruling class understands this, as I, I am certain a sector of it does, they will realize that it's better to have these sclerotic public employee unions <laughs> than it is to destroy the apparatus right. and have workers who organize on their own. So we have the, con right, we have the continuation. What we see here is this magnificent self-organization of the working class. That's what I think we saw. So, uh, really, it's, it's phenomenal. It's just absolutely so inspiring and exciting. And for me, as a teacher, so thrilling that it's teachers who are um, in the leadership here. And I have to say, um, that's not coincidental. And it relates to all kinds of aspects of teachers' work and why density is so high in teachers' unions, much higher than it is in other public employee unions in the United States, um, has to do with an idea of a um, professional ethos, uh, has to do with the fact that you have a single employer, um, all kinds of structural issues about teachers' work, and also the reasons that people become teachers. Yeah, and that, and that get, gets back to your first point, where, you know, there's a whole underlying trend here where where a lot of that is being is being lost, and I'm sure you, you know, and people feel that in their in their in their everyday and that the actual work that they do, not just the material, you know, not just the wages and the benefits, as you said, but the actual what's happening, you know, in the classroom, on the shop floor, whatever you want to Well, call the it. BCTF strike, I think, is one of the best examples. What was the BCTF strike about, really? Yeah, it, was, it, yeah. it was really about class size and special needs students. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was, you know, I, I think that, uh, and, and I know that in Quebec, that's a very serious issue. It's, it's, and it's a serious issue every almost every district in the United States, that as class sizes rise, um, uh, teachers and uh, uh, laws are changed regarding special needs students, uh, or kids who are uh, uh, English language learners, they're pushed into regular classrooms. Hmm. And so teachers are really, uh, they, they feel um, um, unable to do their jobs well, because of the, the because the conditions of work so undermine them, and uh, I, you know I I I don't know enough about the specifics of education reform in West Virginia to say what were those triggers right. in West Virginia aside from money. But I do know that they have to do with people feeling that the dignity of their work isn't respected. Yeah, and that's a common thread regardless of exactly of, you know, what specific part of that work uh, is changed and, and you know, and, and where the where the sort of regressive nature of those changes comes from. I want to, I, 
I need to, we need to finish up, but I, so I wanted to okay. ask you one final quick, easy question for the end facetiously. So, you know, you, you pointed out that sort of that contradiction and just, just previously, you know, between, between this sort of movement of, uh, of workers sort of, you know, rising up and, and, and these sort of, you know, and the unions, which are, which are a little bit clueless in, 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 in the face of, you know, what's, what's going on. How, how would you sim- summarize it? the lessons of West Virginia for that contradiction, you know, how, how does West Virginia help us sort of resolve that contradiction for our side, not for, you know, like you said, you know, for capital side, they, they'd actually be happy with uh, with having clueless sclerotic unions. What's, what's the resolution of that contradiction? For well, I side? think it's what, what the, uh, what uh, is, I think is, I, I think is going to happen in West Virginia next is that I think that, um, a lot of people are going to join the union, and they're not, they're going to be recruited. They're going to be recruited to the union in order to change it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's that's what we have to learn. I mean, there I read a lot from people who say, uh, "Oh, Janice is what the unions need to get a kick in the pants," and I don't agree with that. Um, I think that what will change the unions is. If we recruit a new generation to join the union in order to change it, not accept the unions as they are, but understand that if they're going to do what they need to do, that members have to feel and act as if they own the union collectively. And I think that's that's the big lesson for us from West Virginia, that people felt they owned this movement. It was their movement. Nobody was telling them what to do. They were directing it. And that's a tremendous lesson, I think, for the left and for labor. That was Lois Weiner, an academic expert on teachers' unions in the U.S., Next up, Brandon Wolford, local president of the West Virginia Education Association in Mingo County, West Virginia. So for, for a start, maybe just, you know, uh, explain how, how, this, uh, how the victory of your strike feels in the perspective of kind of a couple weeks time now that, you know, a bit of time has passed and you've kind of come off that, that initial high. How does it feel now? What's, what are your thoughts on this victory? We are, we are very pleased with the results. I didn't actually think that we could pull this off, especially in the amount of time that we did because it just started out with two counties and there was always that fear that we wouldn't succeed or that we were going to be coming out and doing something and then the rest of the state was just going to ignore us. Um, Now we see that we actually have a voice that how we feel, the way we, we react to things, that actually does matter and we, we feel um, a sense of a sense of pride in what we did. We know that anything can be accomplished now that before we thought was impossible. That sort of force, you know, that that force that ultimately showed itself as as this sort of statewide strike that really shut down the whole system uh, and did it consistently. What what kind of organizing? Did you do at in your county and in and in other counties, both the l- local and state level, um, 
I mean, the statewide strike was very visible and garnered, you know, even international attention. But I'm sure there was, you know, lots of patient organizing, uh, multiple large, small actions preceding it. Maybe you could give us a sense of of the sort of organizing that went into creating this. Uh, okay. Um, what what we did was around the time all these frustrations were building, I got in contact with a neighboring county, which is Wyoming County, and I was informed by our local union rep that they were discussing walkouts, which is basically not showing up for work, a one-day strike. So they put me in contact with the local president over there, and I spoke with her, and she told me that they were getting ready to organize something called Fed Up Friday, which meant we were going to go to the Capitol, they were going to go to the Capitol and protest on that day. So I immediately called a meeting, an emergency meeting, and I invited members of all unions to attend. I didn't just say, you know, we've got, I think, four and possibly five unions in our district. But I invited all members. I said, union, non-union, whomever, you need to know what's going on. And I had a few, um, a couple of delegates, um, a senator who came and attended, and we informed everyone of what was going on. And at that point, I created a Facebook messenger group. And I added all the local presidents surrounding me. And then I had them to add the local presidents surrounding them until eventually we had a large majority of the state that was in that group. A couple days later, I attended the Logan County uh, Education Association meeting, which is another neighboring county, and I got up and spoke there, and they also agreed to participate in Fed Up Friday. So after that, we started building momentum, and all three of these counties showed up, and I think a fourth one actually added, and I'm not sure which county that was, but we had other counties that were calling off for snow on that day, so they showed up as well. So we started out with about seven or eight counties on that first Fed Up Friday. What I did was, as far as organizing locally, we are about an hour to an hour and a half away from the state capitol, and I knew that everyone wasn't going to be able to attend. So I organized a local event here to keep to build public support. And that was at the local courthouse, county courthouse. And the ones who weren't able to attend at the Capitol met there. They held their signs. They brought their families. And then the rest of us went to Charleston, where we stood out outside the Capitol, got in the rotunda, were in the Senate chambers, the House of Delegates chambers. And we were able to make our voices heard. And they, they did not respond very well to our behavior. They were very um, reluctant to talk to us. They took the secret passageways in and out. But that was when we started turning the heat up by trying to make sure that we had something going on in county and people representing us at the Capitol, both places gaining community support and Putting, turning the heat up at the state level. And what was your relationship with, with the broader community? How did you build that 
that public support that you know that allowed you to sort of go through and not and not have um, as can sometimes happen you know parents uh, turning on on a teacher's strike and seeing it as contrary to their interests we let them know what they were trying to do to us we made it very clear we let them know that we were 48th paid in the nation and that they were trying to make our insurance even worse to the point that certified teachers were not wanting to stay in the area they had somewhere over 700 vacancies in the state and they still do at this time and we just we let them know you know if you want your children to have a good education you're going to have to support us we didn't put it in those words but we just basically let them know we're the southernmost tip of the state we are in the heart of the coal fields we are in the area that has been forgotten for many years because most of the coal is gone our areas that we live in our communities are ghost towns for the most part we're overlooked and we just let them know you know unless something changes in education unless they pay us more unless they give us better benefits there's not going to be any changes here and they they understood that we had very little if any backlash from parents whatsoever anything it was an outpouring overpowering amount of support Hmm. And how does I mean you, you're like you mentioned you're from Mingo County which is you know heart of the heart of the coal belt and home of militant mining struggles you know th- decades ago how did this strike tap into that union history and that history of sort of struggle in West Virginia of labor struggle Well it was actually born here the unions were born here in the 1920s and that goes all the way back to my great grandfather KB Dixon who fought in the mine wars. He uh, had came here from North Carolina. He, he really didn't. He was, he was homeless. And he just got off the train at the town where the train stopped, and it just happened to be right down the road here in Chatteroy, West Virginia. And um, he immediately got a job in the coal mines. And when he goes in, he realizes that he, he can't understand the language that these men are speaking and come to find out they were all Italian. But what he didn't know was they were actually scabs who had been hired by the companies because they were forming unions and everyone had just walked out and they were living in tents. Well, once he finds out what they're doing, he immediately stops and goes and joins the union and says, I I didn't know what was going on. I was clueless. I'm with you. And out of all this, the, U- the UMWA was formed. So most of us in this community, like myself, have ties to either grandfather, great-grandfather, even down to my dad. I'm a fourth-generation union member, and we believe in standing up for our rights. It is more than just getting the pay raise. It is more than just fixing the insurance. It's standing with your people when you feel as if they are being treated unfairly. And like I said, my starting with my great-grandfather, he ended up being the president of the local union, and he was killed in the coal mines in 1947. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandfather was a union member. And then my dad was also a UMWA member, and he participated in a strike in the 1980s and was very actively involved in that. 
And I have a cousin, Hawkeye Dixon, who's the grandson of KB that I just told you about, and he is a very active local union organizer as well. And he works some with Cecil Roberts in the UMWA. And I, it, it's just, it's very strong. It's, it's strongly built into our, I guess it's in our blood, you know, in this area. We all, we have a sense of community. We have a sense of togetherness and support for one another. Yeah. And what's what's the lesson, as, as a last thing maybe, what's the, what's the lesson from your strike, from your perspective for for teachers across the U.S., we've seen, you know, both Oklahoma, Arizona, New Jersey now, other teachers either on strike or preparing to strike. It, it seems like you've sparked something. What are some of the lessons? There, there is power in numbers. Unity. That is the key to everything. Everyone being on the same page, doing everything that you can to ensure that your voice is heard. You cannot do it in small groups, you have to have something going on in every single location that you possibly can. We had rallies at our courthouse while some went to the Capitol. We had rallies in front of schools. We had rallies that we invited just community members and parents. You have to keep the spark alive. You have to get with your neighboring counties. You have to keep it spread. You have to spread the word. You have to get it out there, what they're doing to you. You have to keep the people informed as to why you're doing it. And most of all, you have got to stand up and not be afraid of being fired. They cannot replace you. They cannot replace an entire state. They will threaten you with that. They will say anything and everything under the sun to try to make you back down. But in the end, no one is going to come in and take your job. They will use every scare tactic possible to try to stop you. Don't let them do it. That was Brendan Wolford, local president of the WVEA in Mingo County, and that's all for this episode. Until next time.